It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Cheerful Book Club. Conversations with the writers shaping the way we think about our world. Ed Miliband, Jeff Lloyd, and friends spend time with the people behind today's smartest writing. In association with Vintage, read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Hello. This week's episode is a conversation that Ed had with the economist Mariana Mazzucato about her book, The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy. The Value of Everything looks at the stories that we tell about who really creates value and then the impact that these stories have on our attitudes and government policy. And as you'll hear in the conversation, our concept of value, it shapes everything from the power of pharmaceutical companies to how we can tackle the climate crisis. As always, please remember to subscribe and to rate the podcast to help other people find us. And we'd love to hear what you think of this episode or the others that we've done with Rana Faruha and Alex Beard. You can contact us on Twitter and Facebook at We Are Cheerful, or you can go to our website and uh, get in touch through that. It's cheerfulpodcast.com. Cheerful Book Club, talking to the writers, exploring the biggest ideas of our time. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. So I'm delighted to say that we're joined now on Cheerful Book Club by Mariana Mazzucato, who is the author, now in paperback, of The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy. She is also the author of a widely read and praised book, The Entrepreneurial State. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So... I thought it was slightly painful, but I can't help starting here. You, I, I read somewhere that you had partly been prompted to write this book by criticism of me after the 2015 general election um, around the that I hadn't had been anti-business and hadn't rewarded the wealth creators or enough and all of that. The opposite. Oh, the opposite. The opposite. I was very motivated to write it due to what was written by some senior Labour people after you lost the election. No, that's what I meant. Sorry, I, I didn't mean you were criticising me. Uh, but I you would were, never criticise you. Were, you were prompted exactly. by the criticism that had exactly. been made of me. The day yeah. after was, we lost, meaning yeah. you lost, yeah. because the Labour Party didn't embrace the wealth creators, yeah. in other words, business. And I yeah. thought, no, you lost because you don't have a narrative about where wealth creation actually comes from. And if we only, on the progressive side of the political spectrum, can talk about redistribution – without a real interesting analysis of how to create wealth, then we're going to lose not just the elections, but the narrative battle. And actually, I thought it was interesting what you had tried to do, but I think you were told to stop. So this is me interviewing you now yeah, about good. kind of we productive like versus predatory capitalism. Yes, producers versus predators. My That's controversial what this book is about. 2011 speech. So can I just say one thing? The subtitle is sort of about that, but not really. So I didn't say makers versus takers in the global economy. It's making versus taking in the global economy. That gives it a much more active 
sense. It's a verb. So we can change things. If it's just makers versus takers, predators versus the productive part, then it's kind of just categories, good versus bad. And so zero sum, maybe. Exactly. Whereas the book is actually about let's transform the financial sector so it's more productive and less value extraction. I'm sure if I listened to you more, I might have won the election. Right. Now (laughs) um, we can agree on that. Now, so let's start then on this point. You said makers and takers, and you define that in the book as the difference between those that create value and those that extract value. So just for our listeners, can you explain and sort of give some examples of of each? It's really about if you have, for example, a financial sector that is organized in such a way that it's just basically financing itself, which I would argue is what we have. So something like 90% of financial resources in the UK go back into the financial sector. Only 10% find their way into the real economy, meaning into industry. That's a problem. And that ends up leading to extraction, right? This is just finance, fueling finance, including, by the way, industry itself, when it becomes financialized, just kind of buying back its shares to boost stock prices, stock options and executive pay. That's an extractive type of activity. If instead you could, you know, have different types of financial entities, which are providing patient long-term finance to those organizations that are willing to do interesting, cool things like produce, you know, a, a, a uh, both goods and services that are useful, for example, for you know a sustainable city, that's value creation, the production of new goods and services that are also you know uh, needed if you want by society. The real point of the book is that when we don't know what value is, then we get easily conned to think that just because an entity is earning money, it's valuable because that's in fact how we treat GDP. We only put in those items that actually have a price. And you do give some examples in the book, like the sort of Philip Green example of BHS. I think you talk about Google, as you just mentioned, and their share buybacks. That's the sort of value extraction, yeah? Yes. I mean, fundamentally, it's a book about that value is actually collectively created by all sorts of different organizations in the private sphere and the public sphere, increasingly, by the way, in the fear of civil society. So also philanthropies are making lots of investments in new areas in both energy and health. So the idea is if if value is actually collectively created, do we have a framework through which to both model it, if you're an economist, to talk about it, uh, to to think about it also in terms of how to come together as a society to, again, co-create value. And, and if we don't have that, it becomes much easier for certain entities, especially but not only in the business sector, to capture a huge uh, portion of the rewards that is in excess of what they're actually putting in. So it's not to say they're doing nothing. It's not to say that certain parts of finance are completely useless. It's the degree to which they're able to extract and to be rewarded from that process is much larger than what they're actually doing. And I know this is a very sort of complicated question, the sort of history of how people define value and how you define value. But I think it might be sort of interesting for our listeners just to sort of get mm-hmm. a sense of that before we talk about some of the practical implications. Yeah. Well, it's actually quite important because modern day students who study economics anywhere in the world, they're often not taught history of economic thought. It's kind of left the curriculums. Um, and so what I do in the book is kind of in a semi-quick way, go through the last 400 years of thinking of what is value. And, you know, in the mercantilist era in the 1600s, there was lots of emphasis of value actually being an outcome of exchange. So terms of trade, the 1651 Navigation Acts was, you know, seen as something really important to negotiate. And they really believed in that time of, you know, big international trade that value actually came out of how you negotiated the trade system itself. But in the 1700s and the 1800s, 
the concept of value became much more objectively tied to production. So in the 1700s, you had the physiocrats, people like Canet and Turgot, uh, both French, who grounded the concept of value. And these really were the first economists ever who actually tried to build models um, to how farm labor was organized. They really believed, and this, again, was an agricultural society, so it's not a surprise, that value came from farming. And then the in the 1800s, you had the classical, they're called the classical economists, and these are Smith, Ricardo, and Karl Marx, who actually then grounded um, the concept of value in industrial labor. Again, not surprising. This Marx's is labor theory of value. Labor theory of value, but it wasn't just Marx. Also, both Adam Smith and Ricardo had a labor theory of value, but it was quite different between them. But what they did was they really focused on industrial labor, the division of labor. You might remember Adam Smith's pin factory example and how an increase in the division of labor would increase productivity, would increase uh, growth and surprise, surprise, the wealth of nations, the title of Adam Smith's book. But the point here is that both the physiocrats and the classicals focused on kind of these objective conditions of production that included technological change, machinery, division of labor. The big revolution the big revolution in economic theory occurred later in neoclassical economics, which is what's taught today, which subjectified value. It's all about individual preferences. It's no longer about what's happening in so the price, factories. price equals value, yes? Well, preferences, so individuals are making choices, right? This is related to the supply and demand curves that people know about. But these choices, individuals are maximizing their utility, which is basically their happiness. Workers are maximizing their choice between work versus leisure. Uh, in firms, so companies are maximizing their profits. And this all leads to equilibrium prices, which reveal value. So the big revolution is twofold. A, it goes from objective conditions of production technology to subjective preferences. And two, the logic moves from a theory of value that determines a theory of price to a theory of price coming from these supply and demand curves and individual preferences, which reveals value. Okay, so forget whether this is right or wrong or whether we mm. like it or not. The point is massive revolution. And most people today don't realize this change happened. And lots of the problems we have with GDP, which feminists have talked about for a long time, that environmentalists have talked about for a long time, is due to this. And that's very clear. an incredibly clear explanation. So that means when the CEO pays themselves a gazillion pounds, They're that's valuable. the value. Exactly. Because that's what the market in some way, however yeah. imperfect the market is, has determined. Exactly. And that's why I have a quote by Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, who in 2009, with a straight face, who was not trying to make people laugh at some sort of after dinner party, said Goldman Sachs workers are the most productive in the world. And, you know, what's interesting about that is that, first of all, it's exactly what you just said, that basically it's the price or the income earned by Goldman Sachs is supposed to somehow reveal their value. Um, but also, it's actually impossible for a school teacher to say that due to the accounting system, because the only way that we include the value of education in GDP is the costs. So the salaries of the teachers goes into GDP, the value of what they're producing. So well-funded, well-functioning public education system. We don't know how to value that I mean, because it's free. I mean, that is fascinating. So, so basically the sort of the person who looks after uh, elderly people in this country, a carer, has one ten thousandth of the value of yeah. a CEO or even less, or even less yeah. because that's where because it's price that determines value. Now, I think lots of people listening to this will think, God, that sounds like a terrible way of measuring value. Um yep. what's a better what's a better way of doing it? Well, first of all, no one number can measure value. And in fact, if you read the work of Simon Kuznets, 
who was one of the founders of the concept of GDP, he actually warned against using GDP, if you want to measure value, it was kind of supposed to be just a, an indicator to give us a sense of how an economy was growing, and especially the sources of that growth. So just to be clear about the logic, pr- your, your thesis is price is not a good sort of indicator, or it cannot be taken as the absolute indicator of value. That That therefore means that GDP, which is sort of the accumulation of price and income, can't be taken as the sort of uh, yeah, aggregate GDP, no, how it's used is the aggregate number of value. Yeah. So we need yeah. so so, we need other so it goes yeah. through sort of value to to GDP and then to better measures. Is that right? Yes. So so for me, it wasn't about okay, let's measure it this way. It was to reveal the huge dysfunctions that occur if we keep you know using the existing indicators. Um, and why we keep using the existing indicators. There's lots of incumbency effects. So there's different actors that are being rewarded and making profits from the, the, the current system. They like the fact that we are mismeasuring value because it's actually allowing them to earn even more, right? So again, when Goldman Sachs can look to be so productive, it's gonna, there, there's going to be a, a greater reason why we have to bail them out, if you want, or have to worry about just saving them as opposed to reforming the system drastically. So before we go on to the practical implications of this, just I think our listeners can totally get where the problems with the current theory, and I know there's not a single answer to what the right sort of theory of value is. Are there places you would direct them though? What what's the sort of what's the kind of basket of ways to think about value? Right. So I mean GDP does have its role yeah. as, as part of that story. My view is that we need to relate it to what kind of economy we want. So if we did want a super financialized economy, then actually, you know, it's good to be valuing, you know, the financial sector as we are. So the real question is, what is the kind of capitalism that we want? So if we're going to talk about inclusive, sustainable, innovation-driven capitalism, then we better have the value metrics that tell us, are we getting closer to that or not? And that's everything from environmental boundaries to the standards of living of the average worker to a whole range of things. Absolutely. And also making sure that when we're looking at, for example, the profit share. So that's how much labor, how much income is going to... To to business, basically, uh, versus wages to labor, that we have an understanding of why that is, what is the value, if you want, underneath that. So just to give you a very concrete example, um, when I was mentioning before that we have a problem with a financialized industrial sector where lots of companies are spending increasing amounts just on buying back their shares, uh, this amounts to $3 trillion worth in the last 10 years by the Fortune 500 companies. So we're talking about a lot of money. That's underpinned by a value theory which needs to be contested. It's not enough to say that that leads to short-termism, too much focus on quarterly returns, which many have argued for, and yet nothing's really happened. If anything, it's just getting worse. If you start saying, well, what what's the value proposition behind that? Why does maximizing shareholder value kind of rule in so many companies? My point has been, well, let's unveil the underlying false assumption that the theory is based on. It's not enough just to look at the outcomes of it, so short-termism. And if you look at the literature, so Michael Jensen, who was writing about this at Harvard Business School in the 1980s, it's underpinned by the assumption that shareholders have the are, are, are basically the, the greatest risk takers. Everyone else in this theory 
um, has a, a guaranteed rate of return. So workers are earning a guaranteed salary. Banks get back some sort of guaranteed interest rate. And only if there's something left over, left over of after the dot-com bubble, left over after the biotech boom, et cetera, uh, you know, will we know if, if there is a booty to be had? And if there is, it's the shareholders that should get it. They, they are justified to get it because they're the only ones that took the biggest risks because they didn't have a guaranteed rate of return. And that's just false. It's just simply not true. My previous book, The Entrepreneurial State, looked at all the investments that went into everything that makes today our smart products smart and not stupid – Internet, GPS, touchscreen, Siri, all that was an outcome of government risk-taking. For every internet that was funded by DARPA, a U.S. government agency, there was many failures. For every um, Tesla investment, Tesla received $500 million in a guaranteed loan from the U.S. government, there was many Solyndras, a similar amount of money that went to a company that went bankrupt. So there's lots of risk-taking. In the U.K., the BBC has been a really interesting investor, you know, investing in the BBC microcomputer and the iPlayer. It doesn't all so always work out well. So the public sector is the underpinning of lots of that private profit. Well, not only that, but in this point that I'm making is that it's also a risk-taker. There's no guaranteed rate of return for the public sector. It's just not true. Or workers are also risk-takers. When you enter a new job, you might be willing to take on a lower salary thinking you have a lifelong career. There's no guarantee of a lifelong career. You might be sacked the next day. So you too are risk-taking in that sense. So this idea that somehow the shareholders are taking all these risks and the rest of the actors in the economy are either lazy or just kind of, you know, sitting by in an easy way, getting some sort of guaranteed rate of return is false. And that's how this notion of maximization of shareholder value should be tackled you know, the fact that it's resting on false pillars. And for me, that's what the book is about. Similarly, and so I guess we're going into the implications yeah. here, the pharmaceutical sector, which is really quite dysfunctional. It really is almost the sector that most displays some of the problems I talk about in the book. It receives, you know, billions of public support just in the US over 30 billion a year in the UK as well. There's lots of different public entities, also third sector entities that have been responsible for some of the biggest uh, pharmaceutical innovations. And yet we've accepted that the prices of the medicines get set by the pharmaceutical industry itself through a model that's called value-based pricing, which is basically simply to let prices go to what the market will bear. Um, it's a perfect depiction, actually, of, of the problem. And so then you need the welfare state to come in, or in the UK, we have NICE and ICE, which negotiates the prices back down. But those prices are wrong in the first place, given the collective creation of value in that sector. And the fact that we don't have a narrative, a framework, a story about it is what enables a pharmaceutical industry to have such a hold on that story about uh, innovation and why it's right for them to set the prices in order to recoup, you know, the the costs when actually those costs were shared much more collectively than they're willing to uh, talk about. So let, let, let's discuss what this means in practice. Because I think there are really important implications in your book. Talk to us about taxation for a minute. You've got this quite good example of the patent box. Right, which uh, I think is the biggest uh, scandal of all time. So go on, I okay. think our listeners need to know about the biggest scandal of all yeah. time. So the patent box is a reduction in the taxes on the profits earned by pharmaceutical products or any product that is that, that has a patent. Okay, so it's basically reduction of the profits earned by a patented product. So the idea behind it is that somehow you're going to stimulate innovation. Now, why it's problematic is actually patents 
which are intellectual property rights, which are given to companies for about 20 years, already took care of that problem. You're given a 20-year monopoly profit. In other words, no one can imitate you. So you've already dealt with the incentive problem. There's no reason you need to go even further and reduce the taxation on those profits. And there's very little evidence that that increases the investment of those profits. So it'll increase the profits, but that's not the point of government. The point of government and policymakers is not to increase profits. Because you've already got the monopoly, so why? why, Yeah, yeah. but the policymakers should be worried about increasing investment, right? You want profits to be unlocked and and invested back into the economy. So the patent box is a perfect example of a policy that has been lobbied for by a particular sector, and the outcome of that was increasing profits, not increasing investment, and a massive fall in tax revenue. Surprise, surprise, the government goes and cuts something, you know, whether it's school uh, meals or something else. And and this is a subset of a more general taxation problem, isn't it? Because the, the Labour government of 1997 to 2010 reduced the capital gains tax facing businesses to as i think it was a little at one point as 10 percent. it's slightly higher now is that a subset of the same problem in other words Absolutely. the so-called Most, wealth yeah. creators are the people yeah. who pay 10 percent or maybe a bit more now whereas actually people who are just earning yeah. pay 45 percent or whatever on there yeah. you know above a certain level yeah and 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 the reason i talk about storytelling a lot is that there are stories told about that in order to lobby for those tax changes to be made. So I say, you know, Plato said storytellers rule the world where lots of the inequality, which we're seeing in the world, which Piketty reveals to us in his great book, was, um, you know, happens as, as an outcome of these stories that have been told. So in the case of capital gains tax in both the US and the UK, there was big lobbying for that. In the US, interestingly, it came from the National Venture Capital Association that had just formed in the early 70s. And they made it their big remit to reduce capital gains tax by um, about 50% in just four years. And in the UK, under Labour government, this just shows that, you know, both sides are, sure. are not always sure. so bright on this. Uh, it was a Labour government in uh, 2010, yeah. you said, which reduced... Well, before 2010, yeah. yeah. Which reduced the time that private equity has to be invested in order to receive that capital gains tax reduction from 10 years to two years. So they made finance even more short-termist, and it was done in the name of attracting capital and attracting wealth creation, you know, stimulating a more innovative economy. So what are the other practical implications of this? this- well, I think there's many different ones. Yeah. One is definitely to be very wary of, you know, GDP, but we already yeah. talked about that. Another one is that if we really want a different corporate governance model, we have to, again, uh, unveil the very faulty assumptions that underlie the current model, which is the shareholder maximization model. But also, for example, in the digital economy, this kind of platform capitalism that many people are talking about, again, it has implications on that. Are we really always just going to be in the backseat, just kind of out of breath, reacting to a system? So worrying about taxing, you know, Google and Facebook, worrying about privacy, or do we absolutely need to change also the institutions and the practices which have allowed this value, in this case, data, which really is the new oil, to be captured by the companies themselves? It actually makes no sense. If you think about it, the technology that's used to retrieve the data Every time you click on Google data, yeah. or or call an Uber a company comes from publicly funded technology. You know, what would Uber be without GPS? What yeah. would Google be without the internet? And the data is itself of the citizens. 
And somehow we've accepted that the data that gets generated from this collective process goes into companies. And then we just worry about, again, privacy and taxation. Whereas what's interesting as an example of rethinking this is what's happening in the city of Barcelona, where the mayor, Ada Colau, has started to think, well, what would it look like, actually, if this data that's generated every time you click on CityMapper goes into a publicly governed, collectively governed repository, which, you know, then improves public transport, as opposed to just assuming that it's completely normal for it to be privatized. And kind of reviving this concept of the data commons requires new governance structures and new value propositions. And unless we do that and really think boldly and confidently, and for me, that means bringing the word value, you know, to the forefront as a collective understanding of it, then we're always going to be too little too late. The final chapter of the book is called The Economics of Hope. We like hope on this uh, podcast. Tell us about the sort of hope, because because I think this is an absolutely devastating critique of what have been, as you've pointed out, sort of bypasses and, at least in the UK, views about value, where value comes from, what value is, as well as about GDP. Where what, what, where does where does hope where does hope come in? So it, it comes back to this point of, of, of the subtitle, you know, the value of everything, making and taking. It gives it a verb. There's agency. We can change this. We can look at history to guide us, by the way. One of the most innovative uh, companies ever was uh, Bell Labs. It was fundamental to the digital transformation. And it reinvested. It was basically AT&T reinvesting its profits back into the economy. And that was because government forced it to in order for it to retain its monopoly status. The idea was you have to give back. You have to reinvest your profits. So it's not just about a new deal in the sense of the green new deal. So that the, if you want direction of investment, I'll say something about that in just a second, but literally the deal, the contract, as soon as you say value is co-created, value is collectively created by all these different actors. And we have to really rethink things. Then the question is, well, what, how do we relate to each other? It's no longer about being business friendly, what you yeah. were attacked yeah. uh, for not doing. Why would you want to just be business friendly? If you have a marriage and one is just facilitating facilitating the other. It's going to be an abusive marriage. It's going to be a predatory, problematic relationship, not a symbiotic, mutualistic one. So really thinking through the relationships between different actors and making sure that public subsidies, public investments are conditional on certain types of behavior, but not in a defensive kind of penalizing way, but kind of, you know, we're in this together. <laughs> like a bargain. I mean, that's bargain, without romanticizing help, yeah. the old age, the golden age of capitalism after the Second World War. There was a bargain there about a risk bargain. and opportunity and exactly. income and yeah. maybe not wealth so much. But. Yeah. So there's the bargain, which is, you know, kind of, I don't want to say a sexy bargain, but, you know, it's yeah. an interesting, tense relationship. It's a healthy relationship if you start kind of negotiating. No one wants to be seen as someone who just kind of gives in. And and by the way, this is also because we've lost capacity to negotiate sometimes in the public sector. But the bigger point is, you know, economic growth and innovation have not just a rate, but a direction, right? So what is the direction that we want to, you know, push the economy into? It always is going to have a direction. The question is, what are the conversations that are being had about that direction? And this is where my recent work also through the institute I've set up at UCL, where I'm a University professor, College London, yeah. yeah, University College London, the institute's called Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. This notion of public purpose, kind of bringing it back and using it to really redirect the huge funds that are out there, whether it's the pension funds, but also government funds through procurement policy, through subsidies and loans and equity 
activity currently are just kind of being dispersed, even just, you know, through these mythological notions of let's help the little companies, the SMEs, or a particular sector? What would it look like to have a mission-oriented approach to the economy? That's how I finished the book. So going to the moon required many different sectors, including clothing, nutrition, textiles, and of course, aeronautics, and many different projects to get there, which many failed. So the willingness to experiment is important. But, you know, it's the engagement of government for such a bold mission of going to the moon and back again is the kind of approach that we should have today when rethinking our health systems, when thinking about cleaning up the ocean, getting the plastic out, getting sustainable net neutral carbon uh, cities and engaging the private sector in these exciting missions, rewarding them for doing so means picking not the winners, as some say, but picking the willing and really facilitating and rewarding those companies that are willing to actually engage in really uh, productive areas because they are anyway getting subsidies and guarantees. But instead of it just being a handout machine, having an interesting, you know, again, symbiotic mutualistic partnership means kind of thinking through how to do that, how to change procurement policy, how to change are, are, are different schemes. And again, there's, you know, using the moonshot as an example, but applying it to these social, what we call wicked problems, which require also political behavioral changes, I think is a very positive message. And there are profit opportunities there. This isn't about socialism. This isn't about not allowing profits to happen, but it just means that we steer the system in a way that's really solving particular problems. Mariana Mazzucato, you're a great, powerful advocate for all of these uh, ideas. The book is The Value of Everything, Making and Taking the Global Economy. It is out in paperback. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Cheerful Book Club is produced by Emma Corsham and Joel Pierce for Cheerful Productions in association with Goldfish London. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.